0: Issues Etc. guest, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, died on February 2nd, 2024. In his memory, we present this Issues Etc. encore. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Scripture is full of all sorts of teachings. It would be, it would really take a lot of books if one sat down to make a a full, uh, complete catalog of everything that Scripture teaches, big and small. It would be volumes and volumes. Of course, it's all right there between the pages and in those sixty-six books, but. Is there any rhyme or reason to all of the things that Scripture teaches? Is there a teaching that is central, if you will, to which all of the other teachings are attached and that gives some rhyme and reason to everything that Scripture teaches? Well, Luther said there was, and he was not alone in saying that, of course. He derived his teaching in the 16th century from Scripture itself. He said it was the teaching of Justification that a man is declared righteous before God, solely by God's grace, through faith, for Christ's sake alone. And what he meant by that was, if this teaching goes wrong, everything else is in danger of going wrong. If this teaching is off, then everything else will be off. He says it was the teaching upon which the church stands or falls. But why did he say that? We're going to answer that question right off here as we talk with Dr. Rod Rosenblatt tonight on Issues et cetera. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt is a regular guest, although I must say it's been quite some time since we talked with Rod. He's professor of systematic theology and Christian apologetics at Concordia University in Irvine, California, co-host of the national radio program, called the White Horse Inn. Rod, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Todd. Good to be back. Well, it's been thanks for standing in for me in several places too. Uh,
0: happy to do that. Happy to do that. You you were supposed to be on this program. The last time you were scheduled to be on this program, you fell ill and you really, really got sick. Are You feeling better?
1: Yeah, some doctors saved my life twice, um, and I'll be grateful to them forever.
0: Well, Luther calls this teaching the doctrine, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Why did he make this assertion?
1: Well, he held that um, the doctrine of justification is a way of summing up the message of the whole Bible as to how sinful men can stand before a holy God. And he believed that the doctrine of justification really was the entire gospel. If a church holds to it, then it really is church. Um, If it doesn't hold to it clearly, it's some sort of a gathering, but Luther would not have considered it church. It's that definitive.
0: So, is it as simple in a nutshell as what I said in our opening that for Luther and the other reformers, for Reformation theology as a whole, if one goes wrong on Scripture's teaching of doctrine of justification, then all other doctrines are put in peril.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's accurate. And and really, it, to get this one wrong, who cares what else you get right?
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, if if the one as to how you're going to get to heaven you screw up uh... How, just how much does it matter if you get a whole bunch of earthly things right not a lot this is this is the kingpin uh... this is the one that defines uh... a whole the whole gamut of what god has done and said in all of scripture um, and many people who are not christians know this They they recognize it sort of intuitively that is, if there's not a way of salvation in the Bible, I'll go look elsewhere.
0: What is it? Put it in a nutshell, if you would, for us, Rod. the doctrine of justification.
1: You think of a courtroom setting, <clears throat> and God the judge has his case against us, and, and the case he's got is a good one. We are sinners, every one, both by condition and by our acts. But before he condemns us forever... In a sort of a metaphorical way, he deals out punishment to himself, the punishment we deserve, and then he slams his gavel down and looks at us and says, I declare you innocent. You may leave.
0: It's that simple.
1: It's that simple.
0: What do we mean by these terms? If you would just go through the classic formula, uh, you've got to the declared righteous side of it. What do we mean by these terms? Uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, for Christ's sake alone.
1: Okay, by grace alone, we do not mean a substance or a stuff. We mean by God's benevolence, his unbelievable, unguessable favor, and um, by his generosity that's beyond human comprehension, he gives to people eternal life who don't deserve it. Um, It is, we might say... We are saved by his graciousness, uh, by his incredible generosity. Um, he is gracious to sinners on account of Christ. and it, it is opposed in the Bible to works. If it's by this, then not by that. If by works, then not by grace. If by grace, then not by works. Um, Romans eleven six has that. So there are two ways of salvation. One is true, and the other is hopeless.
0: So, to to put a point on something you just said there, in Scripture, grace is not a substance that God gives to us, but I guess you could say his disposition towards, attitude right. toward us sinners?
1: Yeah, you can say his favor toward sinners, and then in the background is the cross of Christ, but it's his favor toward sinners, and it cost him infinitely, not us, it cost him, but there was a way in which justice was satisfied and we go free. By faith alone, this one's difficult for Americans. God forgive me when I was a boy soprano, women would ask me to sing at their weddings and I sang this awful song called I Believe. You know, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a (laughs) flower grows. I believe that even in the darkest night, a candle grows, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. You know, that is exactly what the Bible doesn't mean by saving faith. What it means is a giving up on our supposed virtue and instead betting all the blue chips on the righteousness of somebody else. That is, to cast our lot with Christ's cross and blood, and in that, we're giving up on casting our lot with any sort of supposed goodness or virtue in us. It's a turning away from the latter and toward the former.
0: We'll go into this a little bit more on the other side of the break, but uh, along with this notion, this false notion, that grace is some sort of a substance, power, energy that God uh, uh, puts into us, what is the true scriptural view? If it's not grace as a substance infused to us, what does scripture teach?
1: Well, it teaches that God, in his generosity and benevolence towards sinners, imputes to us or reckons to our account the righteousness of his Son as if it were really ours. It's the opposite of, of something being uh, made alive in us and growing in us and so forth and so forth, and God sees its potential and says, ah, I like that. I'll, I'll uh, give you a little more time. No, it's an instant declaration of us having a righteousness which isn't our own at all and he bangs his gavel down and says, I declare you innocent.
0: With only one minute, do all Christians agree that this doctrine of justification is the central teaching of all Scripture?
1: Heavens, I don't know with what's going on today. You can find it in, in many classic Church confessions. But with the chaos going on today, um, uh, you know, we get examples of where it's embraced in principle and then denied in 14 subpoints.
0: Well, take us back to the 16th century, and uh, a little bit earlier, what was the medieval church teaching regarding justification?
1: Well, another one of those doggone English Methodists who gets Luther so well, um, Philip Watson, uh, in his book Let God Be God, laid out that there was a doctrine of justification in the medieval ages. It was one doctrine amongst hundreds, and uh, it's in St. Thomas. And basically, it said that justification is a process. What you and I would call sanctification. Justification is a process, long and arduous, and with the the medicinal or the or the energy of grace put into your heart at the mass, you had the ability to improve yourself such that over the long haul, if you really put your mind and your heart to it, you could change yourself from being an unjust man to becoming a just man before you died. Then God would recognize that you had become just, and he would say so. He'd say, ah, I see you are now justified.
0: So it was, is it too harsh to call this medieval view simply a view of uh, uh, either self-improvement or self-justification?
1: Well, they're out there. They're, um, the magic switch is that they will say it's by grace, but they don't mean what you mean by grace. They even use the term medicinal. Um, um, when I was debating Carl Keating, his opening shot was Dr. Rosenblatt's going to tell you, I don't believe in salvation or justification by grace alone. And he's wrong. I do. Well, what he meant was God in baptism freely grants us grace and that is the beginning of the power whereby we can work with the church and what it tells us to do to gradually improve ourselves it's a it's an absolutely brilliant system of works righteousness
0: under the under the banner of grace sure sure
1: they can work both sides of the street against us they can say you guys don't believe in any improvement you you guys deny Um, the regeneration. You guys deny the renewal. And then they can say to us, and you're false in charging us with not believing in justification by grace alone. They'll never say that about faith alone. Why not? Well, then it turns to Christ. If by faith alone, the object has to be Christ, then that one they will never say.
0: You know, this sounds an awful lot like what Has currency today in a lot of pop American Christianity, general Protestantism. Sure,
1: you know a lot of our a lot of our listeners of the White Horse Inn, you know, listening faithfully over a few years, finally get what we told them early on in the game that actually, if you'd lived in the 16th century, you would have been on the other side against the reformers. You would have been with Rome. Because the way you answer the hard questions as to how we're justified before God are Roman answers now you don't do it in Latin, and your pastors wear suits and ties and not uh, funny hats, but intellectually you would have stood on Rome's side. The natural breakdown of Western Christianity is Lutheran Calvin on one side, Rome and Wesley on the other.
0: How much of this has to do whether it's medieval or whether it's modern this uh, false view of justification, how much of it has to do with what is essentially a weak view of man's sinfulness and fallenness?
1: Absolutely. I asked Dr. Robert Meyer when, or he asked me, what do you think is the most important doctrine of the Reformation? I said, I think it's justification. He said, I'm not so sure. I think maybe it's total depravity. And what he meant was what you just said. If you don't have as a background our utter hatred of God and our inability or not even being interested in pleasing Him, then justification becomes kind of so-so and boring. Um, not very exciting at all. But if you have a real doctrine of sin, where the intellect is darkened, the will is bound, um, the, the uh, uh, all parts of us are corrupted terribly in Adam, and then we confirm it more day by day with what we do, unless you've got that as a background. The cross just isn't that big
0: a deal. So this will explain, whether it's medieval or modern, whether it's uh, the old Roman Church or um, uh, modern evangelicalism, uh, this will explain why the cross is so conspicuously absent. Sure. Sure. If you're already pretty good...
1: You don't need a dying savior, you need a good coach. You know, or somebody who's a buddy, or somebody who's going to be a friend during the dark hours, or anything, but a lamb, you know, whose whose blood rescues you from darkness and condemnation.
0: You said several times in your description of the doctrine of justification according to scripture, you use this illustration of God slamming down the gavel, uh-huh. and speaking his declaration. Uh-huh. Elsewhere you have written, and I think you are really just simply trying to summarize for the Reformers their view, the Gospel, the whole Gospel, is outside of us. Uh-huh. Explain.
1: It's really not—I'm just redoing Luther there is all. Luther, in writing to Melanchthon, who was always wandering around in his innards, wondering if he had enough faith, or whether it was real faith, or whether— it he was wired like that. And finally, when he wrote to Luther, uh, Luther wrote back and said, Larrington, go and sin bravely pow, for fortiter, tear. And then go to the cross and bravely confess it. The whole gospel is outside of us. And what he meant was it doesn't have anything to do with changing our heart. It has to do with a deal cut from all eternity between the Father and the Son, and what the Son was going to do on the cross for the sake of sinners. The gospel has nothing to do primarily with, with changing our hearts or innards. That's an effect of it, but it ain't the gospel. Uh, I think it was Mike Horton said one time, if it's in you, it's not the gospel.
0: Let's talk to Mike in Kansas City. Hi, Mike. Mike, welcome. All right, let's see. Okay, we'll talk, uh, Mikey. There. Yes, I'm here. Patrick. All right, sorry. Uh, can you hear me. Sorry for the delay. There. What's What's oh, your question okay. or comment?
2: Well, first, I wanted to say, uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, um, uh, Jack Bauer is really going to miss your viewership this evening. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> gee, this
1: this really is the supreme sacrifice, I'll tell you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but I think issues etc. Ratted you out earlier this week. Actually. Oh. So, but uh, what I wanted to comment on that I haven't heard anyone discuss, and that happens to be uh, the view of sanctification versus justification from the Evangelical Church from, from this particular view, and that is that... Uh, the focus of the evangelical church, you know, it's almost exclusively on self-improvement yep. or committed sin and sanctification, if you will. Yep. And they almost totally reject any emphasis on uh, original sin and justification. Yep. And they'll say they'll say things like, "We need to preach on the positives, not the negatives." Yep. Then they'll say things like, "Well, they tell us how uh, you know they tell us how good we are, or how good we have the ability to be, and they yep. say that this is crucial to improving our self-image." But but. Uh, Here's what I want to say. I want to say that my argument is that when you focus on committed sin and sanctification, it's neither relevant nor pragmatic, and the reason for that is it forces us to compare ourselves with one another, and when we compare ourselves with one another, that either breeds self-righteousness or Uh self-denigration. But on the flip side of the coin, when you focus on original sin and justification, by its very nature, this forces ourselves uh, to compare ourselves to Christ alone. Yep. And when we do that, that gives all of us within Caesar's kingdom absolute equality.
0: Yep. Mike, th- Mike, thank you very much. Let's see what Rod has to say.
1: Okay. Well, uh, he, he's absolutely correct. Um, in, the, in the evangelical world, justification is given mention, maybe at an evangelistic campaign, it's what gets you saved. Now, once you've, quote, been saved, why in the world would you need to hear more about that? It's done its work. So what's on the preaching and the Sunday school and the curricular agenda after that? Well, it's sanctification, pure and simple. And in in our day, unbelievably, the evangelical has started to sound like the liberal of earlier decades in the 20th century, I mean, it was the liberal who said, we're going to have a new Reformation. This time it's going to be deeds, not creeds. That was the liberal. Now it's found its way into evangelicalism. The other thing is that if all of your emphasis is on the syllable of sanctification, you are going to break people for reasons that the caller mentioned. Uh, One of the things that was said about the Messiah when he came was, that he would neither break the bruised reed, that's a cattail hanging by one strand, he would neither break the bruised reed, nor would he quench the smoldering wick. There was going to be something about the Messiah's work that was going to be so gentle that he would not allow the ones who were just barely breathing to die in his hands. He was going to do something that was going to change their status before the father and he did now the reformers believed that because that's so foreign to us inside that we needed to have a pastor tell us this regularly and weekly not in order to quote get us saved but in order to announce to us again that our sin has been forgiven and on what basis it has been and it has nothing to do with our sanctification it has to do with
0: jesus so sin remains a problem for the christian it does and that really flies in the face of all this victorious living stuff
1: absolutely. that mike was
0: talking about
1: absolutely it does we will the reformers and all of their ilk said when we breathe our last breath we will breathe it as sinners But the sin isn't going to have the last word. Jesus' blood is going to have the last word.
0: So do Christians then still need to hear the preaching and teaching of this central doctrine we've been talking about, justification? Absolutely.
1: When evangelicals come into the Reformation, they realize this is why there was never any of the improvement that they were told they were supposed to have because the gospel was missing from the sermons and the curriculum. It really was. And now you can get to evangelical churches, and Jesus' name isn't even mentioned. When I was young, if you went to a Southern Baptist church, if that guy was worth his salt, you were going to hear something about sin, usually in terms of the blue laws, and you were going to have an altar call at the end, where Jesus was the object of it, and you were going to commit yourself as sinner to Jesus in order to have your robe washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now you don't have any of that language even present anymore. It's the language of the 12-step program.
0: Frank Cole from Indianapolis. Frank, thank you for waiting. Welcome to Issues Etc.
1: Gentlemen, good evening. Good evening. Didn't uh, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther, say that's why we, ha- you have to hear it each week because you forget it. Yeah. And then the other thing is uh, a couple of things. On a white horse Inn. you suggested reading The Pearl of Christian Comfort. What a a tremendous little book that was, Dr. Rosenblatt. Uh And when I think of the uh, salvation, uh, I think of Abraham, God putting him to sleep, Uh and him doing all the work and swearing by his own... Right. By his own <laughs> life. And Abraham slept through the whole thing. He slept through the whole thing. Yep.
0: Well, Frank, thank you very much, and thanks for listening in Indianapolis. Rod, your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's very much to the point. Um, Luther used to say, the law is in us. That's Romans two fourteen and 15. The law is in us. The gospel isn't. And he said, the pastor has to hammer this into us because we will get ourselves into a state where we believe that our status with God has to do with whether we improve this week. It's the nature of of the theology of Adam, and it's in our DNA. And we need a pastor to tell us, uh, for me, say to my pastor, tell me that's wrong, pastor. Tell me again that's wrong. Because everything in me says it's not.
0: Is it really, what we're talking about here between you and the callers, is that the task of the Church remains keeping the doctrine of justification central, not only in its own teaching, but in the lives, the minds, and, yes. the, and the faith of the Christian.
1: Yeah, how embarrassing those, those uh, stats were that you read about Lutherans. Um, they did one of those in the 60s by Mert Stroman, A Study of Generations, and Lutherans didn't get this. When it finally got down to it, you know, speculating about their deathbed, they were going to start talking about that they and their wives sang in the choir for 24 years, the husband served as chairman of the congregation four times in four different places, they always taught Sunday school. It was, it was straight Roman Catholicism.
0: Matt is calling from Florida. Matt, welcome to Issues Etc.
1: Good evening, Todd.
3: Good evening, Rod. Good evening. It's the Rod and Todd show. <laughs> What's is up, it Matt? The Todd and Rod Show. Uh, I wanted to start. I wanted to say this before I said anything else. A few minutes ago, you talked about the smoldering wick and the bruised reed. Yes, I uh, that that was the best gospel I heard, and I mean I heard it this morning, but yes, I needed to, I needed the dose because uh, I know that uh, there are a lot of people who are hearing this. Like I heard two years ago when I. I first downloaded the four-part series from White Horse Inn on Justification, uh-huh. and I had to burn that onto a couple of CDs and keep it in the car. I have had it in the house too, and keep it in the car. And I must have listened to that thing a million times because it kept sure. being this. I can't believe I heard them just say that. Yes. Over because it's just, it was just so foreign to me after so many years of being in you know, Baptist churches, Pentecostal churches, and so forth. God bless you. And I've, I've come to a point where, and I hope you can talk about this a little bit, about how important it is to get a grasp of the doctrine of justification before sanctification can even begin. Yeah.
0: Before the break, Matt was on the line, Rod, and Matt wanted to talk about uh, getting justification straight before you go on to talk about sanctification. Yeah,
1: bless his heart. He got it. Um, When I was functioning in evangelical schools, um, one of them was Westmont in Santa Barbara, I was forever having to pick up the bodies of those along the way who had been destroyed by lots of Christian teaching, but the ignoring of justification in most of it. And so you get on a new treadmill and find that you can't live the Christian life the way it's described in the New Testament, and you're not given any place to go. Um, the, the evangelical pastor is not commanded by his ordination vows to preach justification all the time to believers, to re, uh, convince us that our intuition is wrong. You know, Jeremiah says, there's a way that seemeth right to the human heart, but the end thereof is death. And that way is by the way of the law, and it's in us. And the pastor has to confront that in us every single Sunday to put Christ in its place.
0: Matt, give us a call back, and we'll send you a copy of Rod's Christ Alone. Let's talk next to George in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks for waiting, George.
4: Yeah, thanks. Uh, good evening, Todd. And hi, Rod. Uh, hi. This is this is actually George Wayne, formerly of Santa Barbara. Oh, so hi, George. Yeah, um, well, I landed out in a, uh, a very large church in Raleigh, uh, 1,600 uh, baptized souls or so and it seems like the the main task that uh these guys would like to set for themselves is uh this sort of deep dive into self uh that it's is accomplished with uh you know jungian type personality oh, typing help. and that sort of thing oh help and and uh, there's kind of a big division over this and and you have some you know there're multiple pastors at this church because it's very large but sure. You have some uh, teaching uh, these uh, fuller, fuller seminary type books uh, in Sunday school class. Like everybody's normal till you get to know them and and things like that. And oh, uh, it's it's uh, overall it's this deep dive into self, trying oh. to find your passions and motivations and what you might be good at. And, hey
0: George, before I before I let you go, uh, without <laughs> giving any names, please, is this a Lutheran church?
4: It's an LCMS church.
0: All right. Oh, George. All right. Thank you very much. Rod, what do you think?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, the fact that that would be at one of our churches that signs to the Book of Concord is just ludicrous. In, in the Reformation, self was the enemy. Self was not the place you found the answers. It was where you find the problem. So Christ was proclaimed to try and dethrone self as this sort of self-improving self that finally could get its act together. Um, the gospel is set in opposition to that sort of self improvement. It's the gospel is for those who have failed at self improvement, and really that's all. Romans chapter one is directed to the pagan who thinks he's going to be able to get off at the last judgment by saying, "Jump on the Jews! They had the book; we had no book. You can't call us guilty." And then in Romans two, Paul goes after his fellow Jews who believe that just because they possess the scrolls, that somehow they're justified by being chosen and given the oracles of God. And then in chapter 3, it's everybody, the whole world. And then in the latter part of 3, he introduces Christ as the justifier, freely and for nothing.
0: I have a strong suspicion that this Lutheran Church, of which uh, George spoke, would say, look, we're doing this, we're doing all this, right. to attract the unbeliever. We're trying to show people the relevance of the Christian life, the, uh, the attractiveness of the Christian life, um, and, and when we bring them in, we'll do this, but we'll also then, uh, along the light way, give them the gospel. It sounds like they're taking the exact opposite approach that we talked about with an earlier caller, getting justification straight first. Yeah,
1: it, it absolutely it is. And it reminds me of having Robert Shuler's son in class, and uh, uh, no, the the son of the Ed division at the Crystal Cathedral, and he said, "Yeah, Schuler compares himself to a Barker on the street in San Francisco, inviting people in to the strip show, and then when they get into the Ed department, they're going to tell them what the gospel is." Well, the the confessions know none of that sort of thing, or it's sort of bait and switch. No, you're to present Christ law as what condemns us terribly and then Christ as the one who lived according to the law and who will reckon us freely as if we were just before God. That's the message of the gospel, and the Lutheran promises not just to believe it, pastor, not just to believe it, but actually to do that in all of his counseling, in all of his preaching, in all of the curricular matters. It's going to focus on Jesus.
0: Two quick final questions. I had a conversation about a year ago with a Lutheran pastor, who said, you know, justification was the issue of Luther's Day, and it was central then, but the times they are a change, and and the central teaching that the church ought to be fighting for changes from age to age, and we've gone on to other things. How would you respond? One minute. Classic liberal.
1: Classic liberal, where the the, um, agenda for the church is written by the changing culture. When Dr. Montgomery was at Cornell, one of the things that drew him to a Lutheran church was that somebody had out there on the marquee, we preach an unchanging Christ in a changing world.
0: So finally, why does the doctrine of justification continue to need to be proclaimed?
1: Because sin continues. Even G.K. Chesterton, that great Roman Catholic apologist said there's one doctrine of sin that is empirical, one doctrine of Christianity that is empirically observable. And of course he meant the doctrine of sin. Uh, The only time you don't need the gospel is where you don't have
0: sinners. Here's an email from Leto in Australia. He asks uh, two questions. He says, In acknowledging that saving faith is a gift of God, I've heard it popularly described this way. The Holy Spirit helps or enables us to decide for Jesus or helps us commit our lives to Jesus. Normally, this way of speaking explains what happens during the evangelistic invitation. Is this a proper way of speaking about saving faith? Your response.
1: Well, there's a way in which it's right and a way in which it's wrong. The way in which it's right is that Faith is a gift from God. Anytime somebody comes to believe in Christ as uh the one who is substituted in his life and death for them, that's spirit produced because Paul says apart from the spirit nobody can confess Jesus as Lord, and it had to do with Jesus being God and Savior. In that way it's right. In another way, it sort of plays to the Arminian slash Roman Catholic idea that Uh, What we need is, we're headed in the right direction, but we just need a little help to get there. And that's biblically false. We're headed in the wrong direction, and we need to be turned around. The old King James had a passage in Jeremiah that I loved, uh, the rendering of it. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned.
0: So, is the problem here in injecting a notion of uh, my will... Or a decision?
1: Well, that's always, you know, the, the old dogmaticians in the Lutheran Church said, it actually is you who believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit already does. So it's actually you, but that's got to be given from heaven. You know, like Peter's confession, you know, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, and some say this, and some say that. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know? Um, If we start to think by decision that it's self-produced decision, we get all kinds of trouble.
0: Okay, maybe it's a little easier if we think about it this way. Um, I remember what helped this come clear to me, Rod, is one of my college or seminary professors, I forget which, Putting the emphasis on, he said, whose work is it? Not whose will, not whose decision. He says, lay those all aside. He says, use the language that Luther preferred, which is that the Holy Spirit works uh-huh. faith and produces faith. He creates faith in the heart. Right. That's all you really need to understand here. I, I guess the problem is if you say, well, faith is a gift. Everybody says faith is a gift, but the Arminian would say, yeah, but you got to pick it up. If yeah. You don't pick it up; it doesn't do you any good. Yeah. But, but uh, that but was he all doesn't.
1: He doesn't believe faith is a gift either. A real Armenian doesn't believe that. What do you mean? Well, he he believes that it's a partial deal. Any sort of synergist really believes that he's brought a lot to the table to begin with. He does not believe that all he brings to the table is sin, hatred of God, rebellion, and darkness. He doesn't. He believes that he's um, wounded or that he needs some help, a medic. Um, But basically, he's got some things going for him as a child of Adam, and he's willing to bring those to the table in hopes that God completes it.
0: So the basic question becomes, what do I contribute to my salvation? Sin. (laughs)
1: Sin. The Father brings Jesus, and we bring sin and hatred of God.
0: Well, here's another question, and Lido. thanks for listening in Australia. Larry in Kentucky has several. He writes this, in part, Many churches, groups, pastors, and folks in Protestantism that I've encountered over the years affirm justification by faith alone, but seem to overthrow it with their teaching on sanctification. Preach it, brother. He says, I've heard more than once my former denomination, in my former denomination a plethora of sermons that would state, quote, justification without sanctification means no salvation, And he reads that as you really better work if you want to be sure, he finishes with this question, when you direct someone to find assurance in what they are doing as proof of faith, does this really just overthrow faith altogether?
1: Boy, it sure can. I mean, this not well done throws the sinner back on himself. Now here I'm going to probably upset some evangelical brethren, but in lutheranism we luther knew that you could not be thrown back on self he'd tried everything he was an augustinian monk and he had tried every single thing the church had offered him with regard to self so assurance is not going to be found there and what luther turned to was sacraments real sacraments he said if you are along the edge of the abyss and you see nothing but darkness and you don't know that you have saving faith, and all of the, all of the darkness yawns to, at your side, you go back to when God acted to make you his own by baptism.
0: Well, that kind of leads to the next question from Larry in Kentucky. He says, as a Southern Baptist, I always assumed that Roman Catholics trusted in their baptism. That was the standard answer we'd give. But it seems to me that that answer is wrong. They, in fact, do not put their trust or assurance in their baptism as gospel, which is why the whole system of, la- of later works and indulgences arose. He's correct. He's correct. We don't mean the same thing. We mean that everything
1: that Jesus earned or merited in his dying and in his living is instantly given to a child, and all of what saves that child is all Jesus' stuff, not the child's stuff. What Rome meant was you'll get your first infusion of grace, and then you've got the sacramental system so that like a bathtub that leaks, you can keep adding water to it, hopefully faster than it's leaking out the bottom, and that you will gradually, as you do this, become just instead of unjust, and then God at the end will recognize that you became just, and he'll say, ah, I noticed that you have become just. The Protestants said... Everything that Jesus was and did is given to a child in an instant.
0: So whether it's uh, the the asacramental Protestants or the very sacramental Roman Catholics, both of them essentially ended up viewing justification as an ongoing process yes. in the life of the Christian.
1: Yes. And, and you end up, you know, the one listener said it earlier. That road divides, and one half of it is despair and suicide, and the other route is Phariseeism, where you actually believe you're pulling it off.
0: Let's go to Zeeland, Michigan, where Steve is on the line. Steve, welcome to Issues, etc. We got one minute before this break.
1: Well, thank you very
2: much. It's uh, great to be on uh, with Rod. Uh, Rod, you're the reason I'm a Lutheran. <laughs> uh, if you if you look at the instrument uh, behind uh, the you know the work of God. Uh, the conversations that we've had via email, uh, you've been very helpful. Uh, but to get to my question, uh, I, I found out that Jesus is not the same kind of Jesus I thought he was when we first believed, or when I first believed.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And uh, and this is my question. God seems to allow his disciples to follow him and yet not know who he really is. I think yeah. one thought we wrestle is, is but I thought. Even yeah. John the Baptist seemed uh, puzzled at yeah. the kind of Messiah he was the forerunner for, and it's like the wife saying to the husband, you're not the man I married.
3: Right. And <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, would you say that every Christian either finds that he has a different God than when he first
1: believed, or he erects for himself an idol?
0: All right, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, Rod, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to begin well, the response.
1: What, what one hopes is you are constantly discovering new levels of where Jesus fixes us who are broken. And so the Jesus we believe in, after a few years of believing, is even better than we believed in when it happened at first. Um, that's that's what it should be.
0: Before we go on to other callers or emails, you were you gave a brief response to Steve's call before the break about how kind of the Jesus he knew before didn't turn out to be the Jesus that he or it has it. It's a different Jesus or. Um, qualitatively different. I want to make sure we clarify this. Yeah. For the, for the Christian, this really isn't, well, it doesn't make any difference what kind of Jesus you believe in, as long as you believe in any old Jesus. We'll straighten that out later. Yeah. This really has to do with the, the individual Christian's full understanding of what has been given to them by way of the cre- by way of the creation of faith as time goes by.
1: Yeah, this is why there's no such thing as proclamation without some theology underneath it. You know, even if if it's the simplest thing, it's going to have some theology underneath it. You want a good theology, not bad. Now, he was mentioning um, in the New Testament itself, even John himself uh, found himself in prison and sent messengers to his cousin saying, Hey, it's time to do something messianic here, or are we looking for somebody else? And Jesus didn't tell him to have a, a, a longer prayer time or do his devotionals more. He sent the disciples back to him. He said, you go tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the poor have good news preached to them. Tell him that. So that he could reorient his faith. He was given miracles, as the messianic miracles that Jesus was doing. Go tell John that I'm doing those. Another thing that's worth noticing is that the disciples are completely non-cognizant, no matter how many times Jesus tells them he's going to the cross, or going to Jerusalem, they don't get it until they're just about to go in. And Peter, meaning well, says, no, they'd kill you if you go in there. (laughs) Duh. He's been told for weeks. Uh, But Lewis, C.S. Lewis, saw this as a mark of the genuineness of the gospel writings. That is that they didn't clean up the picture of them they left it as it was and it's not very pretty
0: let's see we got an email this one comes from Bruce in Loveland Colorado In justification, there's a dual exchange. All our sins imputed to Christ Uh and all his righteous deeds imputed to us. Right on. The cross would seem to be the epitome of a righteous deed, loving your neighbor as yourself by taking the wrath of God upon himself. Is there some sense in which Christ's righteous work on the cross is credited to us in this exchange, or is this taking things too far?
1: Luther didn't think it was taking things too far. That was one of the images. It was called the great exchange. And that image is from Luther. You know, in a marriage, you know, the husband takes the wife's this and she gets that. Um, Luther was saying that exactly what the the writer said, his all of our sin is imputed all of our sin is imputed to Jesus. And all of his righteousness is imputed to us. That's a good way to understand
0: it. So that obedience that Paul extols in uh, Philippians, where he talks about obedience unto death, even death on a cross, it is that obedience, including all other things that Christ did, that is also imputed to us.
1: Yeah. Luther said his substitution for us was not just on the cross, though it was. He was substituting for us from conception onwards. In other words, he was con- he, everything he did was a substitution, and for us,
0: Barry in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, writes in matthew twenty two the parable of the wedding feast, the guest who got the boot over failing to don the wedding garment are we to see that as proof of justification as God's choosing and damn damnation as as our own? I was thinking that the guest was offered the feast, and he chose to screw it up by not putting on the garment. Is this correct? This is a touchy parable that might expose a few uh, chinks in someone's understanding of justification, Rod.
1: Well, you know, the parables are tough. Many of the scholars say they have one major point to make, and if you try and make them do more than that, you're asking them to do what they're not designed to do. Um, Sometimes Capon can be of help in this with the difficult parables. But I think the simpler understanding is the right one with regard to the uh, the uh, wedding garment at the at the wedding, that is, if there is one garment that will be accepted at this great marriage feast of the Lamb, and it's the robe of Christ's righteousness. And without it, no other garment will work.
0: So, um, in other words, don't let the the simple point of that latter part of the parable, be don't try and confuse it by saying, well, what did the guy do? Did he, did no. he roll his eyes when the invitation came? No, Whatever no. it may be.
1: No, it's a good place to say the parable doesn't tell us. And you want to get the main point in the parable and then kind of ride loose with what's not central. And and here it is, the basic point is the garment of righteousness must, must be freely given and worn to the banquet, or you won't be let in the door. The person must have their sin covered, and the only way to have their sin covered is by Christ's death on the cross being reckoned to
0: them. Frank in Las Vegas writes, The program began with an illustration whereby Luther and Calvin were on one side, and Wesley and the R- Roman Church on the other. The former emphasized the total depravity of all men prior to conversion, while the latter downplayed the sinful nature of man. I was hoping that Dr. Rosenblatt would speak briefly on the major differences between the Lutheran confessions and the Calvinistic understanding of faith. Both Lutherans and Calvinists confess we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but unless I am mistaken, writes the emailer, each group has vastly different understandings of what faith is, My private studies indicate that Calvin equated obedience with faith, while the Lutheran understanding remained scriptural, that it was strictly the gift of God, the vehicle by which we receive the blessings of Christ, especially the forgiveness of sins via the word and sacrament. Your thoughts, Rod? Well,
1: um, it might be beyond my abilities here. Um, I know something about the Reformed faith, but I get it from Horton, and I'm not you know, Horton is the Calvinist Calvinist, but it's the most Lutheran Calvinism you'll ever hear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, he, he dips into our system when he needs it. Doesn't know he's doing that, but he does. So it could be that my knowledge is just not enough. The, the chapter I think of is in the book by Herman Sasa, um, Here We Stand, and there is a chapter in there on the difference between the Reformed and the Lutheran views of several of these things. Now, the unfortunate part is that the Calvinism that Sasa was presenting was neo-Orthodox Calvinism.
0: Bartian kind of Calvinism. Yes.
1: That's kind of unfortunate, but it's what was in vogue at the time. But that chapter is worth looking at. It's just one chapter in that book, and Sasa is worth reading on any subject.
0: I guess it just highlights, I mean, we can't give much of an answer to the emailer, but it highlights here that... Um, when one sets out the, the the naked formula, justification by grace through faith for Christ's sake alone, is all fine and good, but you really must, absolutely must, define terms.
1: Yes, um, and there is no doubt that Calvin saw, in the, the Christian living the sanctified life, saw things that were not exactly like he got from Luther. There's no doubt about that. It's it's you can see it when Luther did one year of law school and said I can't do this, and Calvin finished and said this fits just fine. Um, Calvin was a product of humanism, in the day. That means you know that they read the original sources, having given up on scholastic methodology. They went back to read the original things in their original languages. Melanchthon came from humanism the same way. Luther came from a peasant family and his life was in the cloister. And he knew that that was not the same as Philip. And he used to defer and say, If you want this said in the language of princes and courtrooms, I can't do it. Ask Philip to do that.
0: Paul in Milwaukee writes, Know your enemy. In Dr. Rosenblatt's opinion, what specific cultural factors? peculiar to the United States at this time, are used by principal subglub and the college of devils working for their master below to downgrade justification and persuade churchgoers to rely on self for salvation. He says, do the same considerations apply equally to other parts of the world?
1: Huh, good question. I, I suppose the one that I run into most often... <coughs> is that form of Christianity that is today sort of defined by inner happiness and self-fulfillment. So that the measure of all things is whether this is going to help me toward improvement of self or toward happiness. Uh, more, And if it's not, then probably I'm not interested. To put Christianity into that sort of format is really to, to torque it beyond recognition. Um, I am amazed at some of the things that the Pentecostal word-faith preachers say on television, because it seems to me so obviously different from what the New Testament says. The New Testament basically says, if you think you've got troubles now, wait till you belong to Christ. You don't know the beginning of trouble. Um, and they seem to take it exactly the opposite direction, um, so I think the major one that I'm, I'm running into most of the time is that Christianity is basically a way f- to make you happy.
0: Okay, but it's not just the word faith preachers. It's the mainstream I preachers nowadays, as you well know. And know. where the word faith teachers might say, we can improve the circumstances of your life to give you more of the things that seem to give joy in life, the, the more mainstream of evangelical preachers say, it seems... Christianity is there to make you happier with yourself. Uh huh. Oh, no, we're not going to make you rich. We won't, uh, we're not going to preach that prosperity stuff to you. Uh huh. But you, but you, but you, we, you will be happier with just who you are.
1: Yes. And we have 30 programs, and one of them's just made for you.
0: Is there any difference between the two when it, when it comes down to it? Between the, the, uh, the, the word faith carnival, carnival barker who promises you a Cadillac to make you happy. Or the guy who writes a book and sells a million, who you know, says y- you can find you can find your purpose in life and thereby become happier with yourself. Yeah.
1: Who? Yeah. Who cares? I mean, the thing that they have in common is their complete lack of a doctrine of sin and their complete lack of Jesus. It's completely Christless. Um, that used to be only liberalism. Now it's not anymore. Now it's, it's made its way to mainstream and into evangelicalism. You can go there for a whole 90 minutes and never hear anything about Christ other than as your sort of helper.
0: Susie writes, if one is justified, can one's faith go up, down, and sideways in believing and then wondering if one is really saved? Sure. And sometimes love God and be so grateful and then have bad attitudes toward the Lord.
1: Absolutely. And we underestimate the old Adam. Luther thought it was normal for the for the uh, the line to go up and down the blackboard, and sometimes down off the bottom of the blackboard to the wall underneath the blackboard. <laughs> Luther thought that was utterly, utterly normal Christian life. Uh, he knew it the hard way from experience, but he knew it from the biblical text. Um, and this is part of why we need the pastor to tell us each Sunday, tell me again that Christ's cross was enough. Tell me again. I've lost track of it. Tell me that his righteousness will save, because I'm doing things that I swear I didn't do when I was a pagan. If anything, I've gotten worse. Um, Tell me again. And that pastor ought to tell her again. The The basic verses. The Son of Man came... Uh, Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Be of good cheer, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.
0: So this is why you have written in several contexts, if you really want to diagnose in depth where a Christian is on the doctrine of justification, whether they really got it straight according to God's word, take them to Romans chapter 7.
1: Yeah, the close of chapter 7 gets the conversation going very efficiently. You don't have to wait to an hour to get to it. You ask whether at the close of Romans 7, when Paul writes, the good that I want to do, I never do, and that which I hate, that's what I'm always doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, does Paul write that after he came to know the Lord or before? The evangelical world is trained that Paul had to have written that before he knew the Lord, because no Christian could talk like that. And the Reformation says there's a great description of the Christian life right there.
0: This, uh, I guess it goes to Susie's question. Sure. This constant struggle with the old man. Sure.
1: And if anything, it gets worse because we become more conscious of the depth of our sin than we were before. But if a pastor's doing what he ought to be doing, he ought to be laying even more the depth of Christ's graciousness in dying and what that did.
0: Let's go to the phones and talk with Norman DeSoto, Missouri. He listens on KSIV. Hi, Norm.
4: Yes, uh, appreciate a chance to chat. Um, I was uh, thinking, you know, that uh, Dr. Robert Price, um, in his uh, little book uh, called Justification in Rome, talks about um, how uh, terms like grace and faith and so on were being uh, all used uh, at the time of the Reformation, but being given different definitions. Yep. And uh, in our Lutheran-Roman Catholic dialogue, that seems to be the same problem. And I guess there really needs to be an uh, emphasis on the importance of uh, defining our terms in our conversations with uh, other people, fellow Christians and, and others, especially, I guess, now with our Roman Catholic uh, friends, and uh, we like to
1: uh, get the right definitions.
0: Norm, thank you very much. Hang on the line. I'm going to send you a copy of Rod Rosenblatt's Christ Alone. Thanks for the call. Rod, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely correct. When the when the, the classical Roman Catholic, talked about faith, what he meant was, I believe whatever the Church teaches. You say, what does the Church teach? You? He answers I don't know, but whatever it teaches, that's what I believe. It was strictly cognitive. And Luther, when he talked about faith, thought he had St. Paul on his side when he said it has to do with confidence in somebody else to do the saving rather than any confidence that I can save me. It was an entrusting of self to somebody else and a giving up on self-salvation.
0: So that's why when Trent uh, took, took pen in hand, when the Council of Trent took pen in hand to deal with the Lutheran problem, they specifically condemn the definition of faith as simple trust in Christ.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: They knew, they knew exactly what Luther was driving. They on. knew
1: Exactly.
0: But you hear the same thing among Christians, uh, the pr- Protestant in Protestant circles nowadays. I know it can't. No, it's not simple trust. There's got to be more to it. Now, very few of them probably even read the Council of Trent's decrees no, no. and canons.
1: No, 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 no. But that's okay. If they're if their churches are truly catechizing the way they ought to be catechizing, things like this ought to be a part of it, not just for talking with Roman Catholic friends but for their own understanding of great biblical words.
0: Okay, then I guess that leads us to another thing, which is, it's usually called Uh fideism. This notion that I believe because I believe, or I believe, sometimes even people put it so crassly as, I believe that I believe.
1: Yeah, or Mark Twain, uh, faith is believing what you know ain't so.
0: Okay, then, often, often... uh, the the descendants of the Reformation will mistake the, the Lutheran notion of faith, the scriptural notion of faith, yes. for faith in faith. Yep. How do you know you're going to heaven? I believe. Yep. Without any reference to whom they believe or yeah. in what they believe. Yeah,
1: it was foreign to the 16th century. That would be uh, like Americans, but it, it was foreign. They knew very, very well that it didn't turn on the intensity of human believing but on whether the correct object, the saving object, was trusted or not. And really, that's not rocket science. Uh, The average person can get that. You can believe all you want to when you get up in the middle of the night and grab the wrong bottle out of the medicine cabinet and by accident kill your child. That faith has to do with whether you grasp the right object or not in the middle of the night. Uh, Faith, as it's presented in the New Testament, always always has for its object, Jesus. And particularly Jesus in his priestly work, in his dying work, in his bleeding, in his, in his cross. Not just any old aspect, but that one.
0: So that also explains the Arminian albatross, which is, do, did I really believe enough? Do I really believe oh yeah. enough?
1: Oh yeah, and we had we had tons of that in
5: Lutheran pietism too. Awful stuff.
0: Alex in Philadelphia. Hi, Alex.
5: Hey, good evening, guys. Good evening. Hi, Hi I, uh, Dr. Rosenblatt. I'm a Roman Catholic, but I listen to the White Horse Inn almost every week. <laughs> I don't agree 100% with you guys. There are some things I have issues with, sure. but, but certainly I would. But one thing I do agree with you and tonight's show uh-huh. is that I think the guy in the pew, whether he's Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Reformed, most of them just don't get it. They don't understand the terms. They don't under... yep. I I really I complain to my wife every week. I says I wonder if half of the people going to mass understand what's going on here and what's being said.
1: Today's I, Roman it, Catholic
5: it, Today's Roman Catholic needs to rediscover the Baltimore Catechism. Well, that would, that's my point exactly. And unfortunately, if you bring that up, if you say
0: Oh, we just lost him there. Oh! Okay, let, let's deal with what he did lay on the table. And it goes to something I mentioned earlier, Rod. Uh, there was that survey from 1995 among Lutherans of all stripes. Same thing as the one that they did in the 60s, Mert Stroman. Yeah, so the study he, of generations. here is this thing where you get 68% of Lutherans saying that the main emphasis of the gospel is God's rules for right living. About 60% of them believe that God is pleased. If one simply does the best they can, that's Good. that's God is grading on a curve. Now these, I, I can understand uh, being charitable. I can understand uh, the the pew sitting Roman Catholic putting yes. it into those terms. Yes, it's a little more shocking to hear sons of the Reformation you answering bet. a survey that way.
1: You bet. And I don't know the answer to this. I know that that the human heart inclines, as I mentioned earlier, to the law, but I don't know. What in the world we are doing in our parishes that that percentages like that come out? Those are awful numbers.
0: You know what I discovered, though? Those numbers came out when I was serving as a parish pastor, Uh and I distinctly remember having them shared with us in a pastor's group. Uh And the the room divided down the middle, Rod. Uh The guys who were into—look, we've got a— emphasize Christian living, uh-huh. we got to emphasize the Christian life to draw people into church. Those guys said, these numbers can't be true. Oh, really? They tried every way they could to discredit them, and yet the guy who'd done the survey was sitting right in front of us saying, hey, you know, we, we work these numbers back backward and forward. Right. When faced with the consequences of pushing justification out of the center of their preaching, They had no response to
1: it. Interesting. There just is no excuse. People understand what it is, in some sense of the word, to sign a confession, to sign to the Book of Concord. But in America, it's very easy to think that what that means is that your signature's on file somewhere in a safety deposit box. But in a Lutheran sense... You are saying by your signature, this is going to define what I do every week in my office and parish. Every time I teach, every time I preach, every time I this, every time I that, it's going to be the message of the depth of sin and the wonderfulness of the incarnate Son dying for that sin.
0: Well, I guess picking up on something Alex said, does that mean that the average person, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Calvinist, whatever they may be, the average Christian needs to be able to sit down and write a 200-word essay on the doctrine of justification, the, church upon, the, the doctrine upon which the Church stands or falls, with no. all of the theological definitions rightly placed.
1: No, it, it can, you can do it sort of um, as a soliloquy. Imagine you're on your deathbed. What's going to be your hope? Now that gets it down real quickly. You don't have all your faculties anymore. What's your hope? What's your hope?
0: Does it have to even go as far as the deathbed? Can it be when I come face to face with the depth of my sin? Sure. What's my hope?
1: Sure. Sure. And Luther... Luther said, whatever your God is, is what you trust in most of all. Uh, I remember a scene from that old uh, book by Catherine Marshall Christie. There was a a woman, Appalachian woman, dying, and she had this awful liberal pastor at her deathbed. And before she died, she said, Sonny, you got some things yet to learn about Jesus. Huh? And she died, trusting that Christ's cross was for her. The pastor didn't believe that for a minute
0: so if the if the pastor steps into the pulpit at the funeral service rod and um he's doing the literally doing the post mortem yes, on this person. Yes, what message does he deliver to those who have seen this Christian? They know this Christian? Uh, they they now miss uh, the loss of this Christian. What does he say there? Well, he's still going to
1: talk primarily about Christ who saved her, or Christ who saved him. Our emphasis is not on eulogies. I did this once at Forest Lawn. Um, that's a whole other story. But anyway, the service was over. I followed the, the casket out to the hearse, and we were headed toward the graveside, I came back in to change clothes and get my New Testament, and the organist called me over. And I went over to the organ very quickly, and she said, do you have a minute? I said, just about that. How can I help you? She said, what was that you just did? I said, it's called the gospel. She said, that's amazing. I've never heard that in my life. She played funerals all day long at Forest Lawn every day. She said, what in the world was that you were talking about?
0: What does that tell you?
1: Holy smokes, it tells me whatever pastors are doing at funerals, it ain't Christ.
0: Well, okay, respond to the person who says, Look, in theory I agree with you guys, but if you teach and preach too much on the doctrine of justification the way you guys have articulated it, you're going to give people a license to sin.
1: The answer is in the structure of Romans after Paul does for three chapters on the depth of sin, Jew and Gentile alike, and the lostness of the whole world, and the whole world's silence before God, then he does the glory of Christ and his saving work. Romans chapter 6, the, he imagines what his critic is going to say. His critic is going to say, then what your answer is, is we can do whatever we want, right? He knows if he has truly preached Christ, that's what the audience should say. And in 6, 7, and 8, he makes clear that the Christian life is going to follow faith in Jesus in a way that we never would guess. In other words, we think that unless we hammer it hard by the law, the Christian life won't be helped in people's lives. Actually, it's the opposite. You talk about the free grace of God in Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and that's the only thing that will produce any Christian life. And that's the structure of Romans.
0: 1-800-737-0172 is the phone number for our resource line. You can use that number to request a free complimentary copy of our Next Issues Etc. journal. You can also use that number to join our monthly or annual donor program, the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. Now, anyone who joins during the next five weeks, the Epiphany season... Will receive the new I Have Issues T-shirt. One eight hundred seven three seven zero one seven two, or write us. Our address: Issues, etc., Box ninety three sixty, St. Louis, Missouri six three one one seven. Box nine three six zero, St. Louis, Missouri six thirty one seventeen. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt is professor of systematic theology and Christian apologetics at Concordia University in Irvine, California. He's co-host of the national radio program, The White Horse Inn. Rod, it's always a pleasure. Glad you're feeling better, and it's good to talk to you again. Thanks. You could face it every day. Uh, You could be like that woman who goes to the last moments of her life knowing full well that what she has produced in her life counts for nothing before God. Her righteousness, if you will, is, as Scripture makes so very clear, before God, like filthy rags, why present that before God? Christ's righteousness, on the other hand, now there's something that God regards. He makes it quite clear that he regards Christ's righteousness as enough. Christ's perfect obedience, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection as enough. You know how? He raised his son from the dead. That's how you know that the only thing that avails before God for you is the obedience and the righteousness of someone else, not you. Only Jesus. God raised him from the dead. He lived a sinless life in your place and he died that sinless death in your place. And God raised him from the dead. God is saying in the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, now that's the kind of righteousness that avails before me. That's the kind of life with which I am pleased. And guess what? Jesus lived that life for you. That's the kind of life with which God is pleased. That's the kind of righteousness that avails before God for you. That's why Jesus became your substitute in his life, death, and resurrection. All for you, so that his righteousness might avail before God for you. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc.